Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Hello and welcome to the Virtualization and Cloud Security Roundtable episode number 184. I've been doing this for quite a while. With me this week is Kevin Myers. He goes by the title of Network Architect, but he actually owns a wonderful little um, company called IP Architects. So um, I believe that's right. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you. Also with us is Mike Foley, the Senior Technical Marketing Architect for vSphere Security. I think that's what it is. Did I get it right this time, Mike? I got it right. Your sound is um, very echoed. I'm getting an echo from you. Um, Kevin, are you on via an IP phone, perhaps? Uh, Yeah, I'm on an IP phone. I can hear you clearly, uh, Edward, um, but I'm having a little trouble hearing Mike. Same here. I'll reconnect. So, this... this, Mike is hung up. He's not only muted. Um... Kevin and I were talking on a, a, another channel with a, t- a bunch of Tech Field Day delegates. So if you're interested in Tech Field Day, please contact Stephen Foskett and get involved with that. That's actually a really cool opportunity for individuals and vendors alike. But we were talking about Kevin's use of security appliances for non-security purposes, which actually led to a conversation that Mike Foley and I were having on scale. And I think the two dovetail a little bit. So let's rehash a little bit of that conversation and then move forward. I mean, as a network architect, um, tell me, tell us a little bit about what your company does and what you do. Yeah. Sure. So what I do is uh, it's a little bit unique. We I think I have some pieces that are uh, very common that most people recognize. We do uh, a lot of service provider design for wireless and wireline service providers, as well as enterprise and data center uh, type design and work. So I have something that some things that are very mainstream, but I also do a lot of work, uh, some specialized RF work in the world of design of microwave and RF and LTE, and that's kind of what makes our firm a little bit special. So kind of a lot of different things as an independent, which is something that I like. Um, but but uh, oftentimes, and to go to the conversation that you and I had about you know routing protocols and and things like that in security appliances, a lot of it came out of uh, my enterprise data center work. Um, it was when we were dealing with large global enterprises. Um, We kind of started a few years ago. In my design work, I started trending towards using routing protocols um, in the security devices um, to include um, not just firewalls, but things like um, some of the security appliances that hang in front of load balancers, uh, like F5s and and things like that, simply because 
the architecture and the environments were getting so large that, you know, having to cross between multiple routing protocols and static routes and redistribution um, became very difficult. You know, you weren't able to be very agile and it took a lot of, of work to get it in. So using routing protocols allowed us to make things very dynamic so that when a, you know, a firewall needs to reach something or a service that you have needs to be reachable to an entire global enterprise, it you know, becomes a much, uh, much simpler process in the long run. And that actually dovetails quite nicely with the conversation of scale, because when you start talking about a hundred, couple hundred thousand different devices on there, or even larger numbers of devices, and you start talking about clouds and outside of the realm of um, things that are outside of my realm. For example, if I move, if I put my stuff in the cloud and I have a hundred thousand containers or services I want to use. I'm not going to want to manage a router and a firewall and another device and a load balancer and everything else. I kind of want to chain them all together to be kind of one big thing. So I have like a super security device, but it's actually made up of multiple devices. And when you sure. And I think that goes back to the conversation we had a brief, we touched briefly on, you know, security chaining versus non-security chaining and when, when that made sense and which application architectures, you know, that was, uh, you know, that was appropriate. And the thing is, is the question, question becomes, when is it appropriate to do that? Well, and I think, you know, for my realm, and I don't live so much on the application side, so, you know, and I, do, I don't deal with service chaining as much. So, you know, for me, the thing, the thing that I like about it is that it gives me options for in the, in the ways that the security devices need to react to and talk to the network that I might not necessarily have with a more static approach. You know, I'm going to give this device a default gateway and then let it go deal with a router somewhere. Um, because the challenge is a lot of times you're doing things um, you know, you're doing things in these devices sometimes that require very, you know, very granular level of policy and control that, you know, we just, it used to be, we just had a default route and we were done. But, um, a lot of times nowadays, especially I've seen in web scale companies, there's a preference for things to get injected at a slash 32 route because they have a, an IP that just needs to go somewhere and it's very specific. Um, and it's, it's policy based, even servers I'm seeing, I think in talking to some of the web scale guys like, uh, like Russ White, you know, there's, they're even, uh, sometimes taking, you know, servers and they're at, you know, advertising a server um, with a routing protocol and connecting it and doing some slash 32 routing. So I think, you know, there's, there's an interesting mix of things that you can do there if you want to leverage the routing protocol to help you instantiate policy in some way, um, you know, for the things that you want to do. Well, and that actually brings in is that there's multiple different types of routing. Most people that I talk to don't do BGP because they're just not at a border. They may do... IGMP and they may do NAT or some other mechanism to simplify their life a little bit. But what's the most common one today at the when you start talking about wireless or anything like that? And can modern firewalls actually support it? So that's a great question because the answer uh, is very dependent on what timeline you're in. If we were to to go back in time three or four years ago, you know, this would have probably just been limited to the Googles and the Facebooks of the world uh, because most firewalls, uh, Cisco, Juniper, Palo Alto, take your pick, uh, did not support BGP or had very early support for BGP. And now, several years later, it's almost every firewall that I'm aware of from all the major vendors support BGP. Um, and OSPF, and some even support um, ISIS and, and EIGRP. So you kind of have a mix of protocols that you can choose from to kind of tailor it 
to what you want to do. I have a strong preference for BGP simply because BGP is the most policy-driven protocol. And so it also it often tends to be when you're building a, an, a, an architecture for routing for a large company, uh, for a large enterprise or data center, you tend to use BGP even in the interior to solve a lot of problems. So when, when you do land in an environment like that where you use BGP even inside the data center, um, I like having BGP on the firewalls because it gives you a unified routing protocol, which makes implementing policy uh, far easier. Well, in, 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 you know, most, most virtualized firewalls that I'm going to be using in a cloud or something like that, or even the physical ones, will support that. So now I take sure. a firewall and make it act as a router specifically, and BGP is great for application-level security as well because I can control the route to an individual cluster just by broadcasting saying, hey, I'm alive. No, I'm not. Yes, I am. It's kind of an anycast type of thing where the application is now responsible for the routing. By telling right, you the absolutely router, right. I'm around. Yeah, absolutely. You you can even if if the you know, and to your point, if you even have it down at that level, um, like they do, I think it was Microsoft. I, I was reading that you know a few years ago back had had put routing protocols on servers themselves so that they could implement that kind of a policy. So uh, BGP is so extensible. I think you know a lot of people leverage it for things like that. And you do have to be careful. You can get into trouble if you put too much policy in there. So there is a a fine line that you have to draw. But I think we're seeing a lot of interesting things being done with protocols that already exist um, in that realm to be able to select, uh, you know, select the path and define a path and make sure I have the exact defined path as well as failover. And then there are uh, some more advanced things you can get into with even uh, MPLS, which I don't know of any firewalls that support that um, for traffic engineering. So, but at least if you have your security devices that are routing aware, um, not only could you set policy there, but you could also push policy down to them as well. Um, and I'm sure, you know, a, a good coder and a DevOps guy, um, you know, can, can help tie in the application policies uh, that you need. It's certainly not my realm, but I know people are doing it. Yeah, there's quite a few people doing because they have to. I mean, we think about the scale that we're trying to hit. You almost have to. So, Mike, you and I have talked about this in the past. I mean, the simplest thing for fire, what's the simplest rules, or not rule, but policy we can state for a firewall, you know, when you think about it? (laughs) Isolate your management interfaces from every other thing. And for virtual and cloud environments, that's not just the management interface of the environments, but it's also the management interface of those firewalls themselves. Keep them yeah. separate. They're, they don't belong on the network with everything else. But, but there's something actually we, you and I have been talking about for a while, and that is it's like, and this always comes up, it's like, oh, I got a firewall, an edge firewall, and I got a million rules or 100,000 rules or 50,000 rules, and I'm just looking at that going, why? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the old days you used to do that. I mean, Kevin, I'm sure you've hit those too. But, I mean, the real question is, is with modern technology, do we need a lot of rules? Should not that edge device that's acting as a router and or firewall be, like, just kind of a gross gateway saying, I'm going to allow you in because you talk the right protocol and on the right port and you have the right authentication but I'm not going to let anybody else in, and then I'm going to let the app do fine-grained role-based access controls. 
Sure, you can totally do that. And I, I, to your point about the lengthy um, rule sets, I, I will say whenever I get tasks, I'll give you a great example in the realm of compliance. Um, when I have to do something like PCI compliance and we go look at that, we can, we'll often take a, you know, a rule set that's tens of thousands of lines and you can collapse it down to you know, something that's maybe less than a thousand because oftentimes rules get put in that are repetitive. They don't really represent. They represent a lot of different you know, migrations or whatever it may be. And you oftentimes can, can really um, restrict that down to a more you know, um, uh, you know, better, easier set of policies. And to your point about if you're going to harden the application and let the application make some decisions, you know, then you can say, okay, here's, you know, here's what you can get to, and then I'm going to harden the host. And in, not to derail things too much, but if we're going to move into an IPv6 world, that's where we're moving to because you're not going to be dealing with NAT anymore. And you're not going to be dealing with those kinds of technologies. You're going to have some reliance on the end host to be hardened, have its own set of policies. But are we actually moving to an IPv6 world? I mean, I know companies are doing it, but they basically do it externally, but internally they're still IPv4. Right, and I think there's – I think one of the reasons I think for that, and I, I obviously I've got a very – routing and switching centric view of this because that's the world that I live in. But some of the benefits that I've noticed out of IPv6 are, are oddly enough not the benefits and the reasons it's being touted. You know, we're running out of IPs, so IPv6 is kind of the great savior. But one of the most interesting things that I've noticed since I've been implementing it because I have a lot of international clients, so we've actually gotten a lot of exposure to v6, is that it actually performs better in a lot of instances. The TCP and UDP algorithms are much newer. Um, they seem to be more efficient on the order of anywhere from 20 to 40 percent in the transfer of data, um, even though it actually takes more MTU to, to carry an IPv6 header. Um, and the, um, because the mechanisms for TCP and UDP are, are faster, uh, and a little bit better, we actually see better performance on voice traffic. So when you, if you have to transport voice traffic, um, the jitter is actually better. And there's been a little bit of research into that phenomenon. So there's actually, you know, behind, beside the, the exhaustion of the IP addresses, there, there are some tangible benefits you can realize from moving to V6. And I think, um, you know, if the application developers saw some of the benefits we've seen in the transport of data and the responsiveness, um, I think you'd probably see more, more uptake on V6. Well, not to mention just a general security uptick as well because, you know, when you think about it, IPv4 is actually broken from the beginning. IPv6 tries to fix a lot of the things that were broken. And it does, and it has some a, of that a header for IPsec as well. Um, you know, it's actually got a header integrated for IPsec, so you can make that decision at the routing level if you want to. But IPsec is really a pain to implement. I mean, Mike and I, you and I talk about doing encryption everywhere and encryption and flight encryption of data, and we're still struggling with, I mean, a lot of companies are struggling with just managing all those keys. When you start going oh, sure. to scale, now you have to have a key management system that is as available as your DNS system, subsystem. And can anybody make it that way? I mean, DNS I think that's, is only available because it's spread across the rest of the world. I think if you look at the traditional key management, uh, it's done for very, very specific purposes. I think what you're going to see over the next few years is key management uh, probably being redesigned 
to operate at a much higher scale than it is today. Uh, key management systems are kind of traditionally built by companies with a very security-focused audience. And key management really needs to move into the realm of a standard data center offering. And well, that's you can't, you, it, it's, it, you know, if, it, if you kind of look at the way RSA Secure ID was, was managed and, and sold and stuff, you bought a pizza box or two pizza boxes, and those were managed by the security people and not by IT. Could you, I mean, this is a question for both of you, I guess. Could DNS itself be used as a way to do a key management system? I mean, really, it's just oh, a key value pair. Yeah. Oh, man. You'd have to wrap you know, a whole bunch more security on top of that. Explain. You, how do you set up a trust relationship? I mean, obviously, we have to do something. I think Internet of Things is, is going to rapidly change that market because what I really want to be able to do is be able to put some sort of device on the network and have it be somewhat stateless uh, and be able to set up a trust relationship with somewhere it can get keys that I issue. And those keys would lock down everything on that device. Kevin, what's your thoughts? Well, and, you know, I don't, I don't deal as much in the security realm, but I know, you know, we have, we're, we're all working towards DNSSEC, so I wonder if that trust relationship that you established with DNSSEC could be leveraged to do what you're talking about. I, I know we rely on DNS now. Some implementations on the network side um, allow us to use, you know, it used to be on the network side, IPSEC was hard because you had to statically define the IPs that were in play. Most platforms now allow you to resolve that to a DNS address. So you're not, you're not as static in your config in the network side as you used to be because of, you know, some work on the vendors to let you use DNS for IPSEC. And that's been very recent development. So, but as far as the trust relationship, you know, that, that I don't know. It's a good question. And certainly one, you guys are probably more qualified to answer than I am because I don't tread on the security side quite as much. I think DNSSEC could solve some of that trust issues because it really is the last mile. It basically says, yeah, that is the DNS server I meant to go to. But then again, there's always DNS crypt as well, which is an encrypted path between the DNS servers. So even if basically it's SSL for DNS, where DNSSEC is a handshake, if I have DNSSEC and DNS crypt, I can, get, I can establish a trust relationship. But now, I, I mean, the reason why I'm saying that is because in order to do key management right at the scale we're talking about, specifically inside of Azure, Amazon, and my data center, and my iPad, and my IoT device, I need something as prevalent as DNS. Now we have a networking problem, not necessarily a security problem. We know how to establish a trust relationship. We know how to do encryption. How do you share that becomes a real big question. 
Well, I, I think at least one of the ways they're going to they're they're looking at at solving that, and this is kind of you know it's interesting in the way it dovetails in because BGP is being leveraged in some systems to do it. But in our world, SD WAN is becoming rapidly popular as a way to be able to scale connections over multiple types of transport and secure them uh, because it has a management architecture for the paths. So if you're talking about you know, encrypting end-to-end transport and dealing with that aspect of it, SD-WAN is becoming a great system for networkers to use to be able to provide that path and a common framework for that encryption. Um, and the interesting part is they're using um, BGP. A lot of them actually use BGP under the covers as well as some, you know, some SDN secret sauce to actually make those overlays work. So I think from our standpoint, a network world, um, I think the getting the data encrypted in flight and managing that and then providing a path for all these different things you're talking about, whether it's you know in your private cloud, it's in the public cloud, or it exists in a privately managed data center, those overlays are helping to provide a cohesive management strategy so that you have a set of encrypted paths. Now you just have to d- deal with you know the encryption at the application level. Mike, what are your thoughts? Um, I, I think we're I, I think we're poised for a lot of change to happen. Um, I, what what I'm afraid of is that um, that what security are you people. I, I, I what I'm afraid of is I I'm afraid of that security people don't always think through problems at scale, and they always tend to think through problems as, well, the way we've done it before is, and rather than pushing themselves to think a little further outside the box uh, to deal with some of these, excuse me, deal with some of these challenges. Um, I mean, we're we're not talking about adding thousands of new servers. We're talking about adding trillions of new devices. Mm-hmm. And I mean, literally trillions in the span of the next 10 years. And what we have today, I'm afraid, is coming really close to not cutting it anymore. And um, we have, we, we can't continue to run in the same mode we're running in at this scale. We It's time to to really push the boundaries of what we need to do. So, for for example, for years and years and years, and I still hear this from engineers, oh, we don't want to turn on SSL or, you know, SSH or anything like that because of the over, the performance overhead. You know, I mean, if you look at the C-sharp client for, for VMware that is now dead, uh, it did not enable SSL unless SSL was explicitly set in the target that it was connecting to because of a years-old decision way back in the day that, well, it would decrease performance. We can't do stuff like that anymore. We have to demand of the chip makers you need to be adding this stuff, and they are. And, you know, I mean, Intel's done some really amazing work around SSL, I mean, around uh, encryption speed up. But we have to demand of vendors that 
performance should not be the issue when it comes to security. Well, when you think about yeah. it, because of Intel's cap- what Intel's done, the actual the networking world is benefiting as well because of all the open networking switches actually have built-in encryption because of what Intel is doing. So now they can do it at a speed that they could never do it before. So the, the overhead's just not there anymore. You want right. to turn on IPsec using an open networking switch? Hey, that's easy because the chipset already supports it. Right. And, yeah, I, and what, I don't, what, what I don't want is, is des, design decisions for the next generation of scale, where we're talking trillions of devices, to be hampered by someone making decisions around, well, it's not performant enough. If you put the the hard work up front, and maybe it's not as performant initially, but it will be very, very rapidly by the chipset vendors. Okay. When you think about that, Kevin, you guys deal with, I mean, networking, you guys deal with scale all the time. And it's oh, absolutely. Just a couple hundred um, devices. Yeah, well, when we're dealing with, well, and, and a great example of that is, you know, I do a lot of work with ISPs, and there's, you know, uh, you know, the Internet represents that kind of scale. You know, when you're dealing with ISPs, the global routing table, um, you know, and talking about, you know, millions of devices or even getting into, you know, trillions of devices, the you're dealing with those kind of problems at service provider scale, even though we're dealing with them in a slightly different way you are at, you know, you're dealing with cloud, cloud applications and cloud architecture. Um, what I will say is, you know, a couple great points that you made, Mike, is about, you know, we've got to find a better way to deal with it. And I absolutely agree with that because it, from an ops realm perspective, um, I know security and networking get divorced too often and they should be tightly integrated. And that's an unfortunate byproduct of just the way we've been. I think some companies are getting better about that, but I, I've worked in many environments and consulted for environments where security and networking are always fighting and it really, it doesn't need to be that way. It shouldn't be that way. And I think it holds us back a lot. And then to the performance aspect of what you're talking about, then absolutely we've been held back on the network side for a long time because it was incredibly costly resource wise to encrypt traffic in flight. And that's getting a lot better. Although the infrastructure of the internet is causing us some challenges. And I'll give you a great example that I just ran into over in Europe is um, we were wanting to use MaxSec to encrypt even a private, private transport between data centers. And we wanted to use MaxSec to encrypt it. And unfortunately we found well, out that can you tell, Ethernet can you tell everybody what can you tell everybody what MaxSec oh, is so people know? Uh, yeah, essentially, and I, I'm certainly no expert on it, but MaxSec is the ability to encrypt Layer 2 traffic. So if you have a Layer 2 network segment and you would like to encrypt a Layer 2 network segment so that you can you know, extend uh, or tag VLANs between two points and encrypt that traffic in flight, there are network, uh, there's network hardware that will allow you to encrypt it at the Mac Layer, layer 2. Um, and so we were looking at using some of that, but what we found out is that the um, – Metro Ethernet standard, which is called uh, MEF, Metro Ethernet Forum, which is the type of Ethernet that we use to transport the DCI between the data centers, actually does not support MacSec. So we would have had to put an overlay in, which would have given us a massive performance hit in order to put MacSec on top of it. So those are the kinds of challenges uh, we, we face on the network side in trying to become more a part of the end-to-end encryption process. Yeah. But end, end, and you really can't say end to end encryption because now there's laws coming into play that if you use end to end encryption, you can't. You know, 
So now you got to it's got to deal with jurisdictional laws on our even on on our global networks. And when you say a MacSec, I mean that's all what IPsec is doing anyways. It's just doing it a layer above. Exactly. That's exactly it. It just it does it at layer three. So when you're routing, you know, you can encrypt it on a firewall or tons of devices do IPsec. MacSec's a little newer and it, you know, encrypts it at a lower layer. It was really designed for circuits. A lot of people were not traditionally encrypting circuits that were considered private from a carrier because they were trusted. And now we're kind of changing that direction. Um, I don't think there's a huge threat to those circuits because you know, there's not been any evidence that they've been breached. But as we become more security conscious, uh, conscious it's it's uh, you know, just something we're doing as a matter of course. So we're still back to we need a key management layer that's kind of global. We need one that is across our footprint. We should be taking a page from the networking folks to say, you know, hey, they're doing it the doing it this way at scale we should also consider security folks need to start looking at it from that perspective as well, I think. But will they? I mean, networking saying, Mr. Firewall, I want you to do my routing for me, says I can get rid of my routers. I don't have to buy a router. I can just use my firewall. But a firewall has been a, a router since day one pretty much. So I've always oh, yeah. been a little confused Absolutely. by having duplicates. Well, I think it depends. They've they've gotten intelligent enough to be able to use routing protocols now, and the um, manufacturers have recognized there's a huge demand for firewalls that can talk routing. There's so many use cases out there for it. They finally responded to that need and filled it in. And you're right, it's been a router from day one. It's just had a limited set of capabilities that we've only recently expanded. And by simplifying, by getting rid of the routers, effectively, or special purpose devices, you simplify the networking, you simplify the wiring, you simplify the rule sets you need. And you can, I mean, that's actually a really, overall, a good thing. Uh, you're absolutely right. There's some environments we use, um, uh, where we use a firewall as the primary router for a site. Um, and then we'll, we'll, there will still be some other routers involved that carry the BGP traffic, but when you can do enough routing functions inside of it, depending on whether you're talking about uh, a small branch site for an enterprise or whether you're talking about instances of security devices that you're putting in to support a cloud application, it opens up options for you that you didn't have before. And I mean, when you think about what they've done with some of the virtual, virtual networks and the overlay networks and stuff, they've actually reintroduced into the whole picture the actual router. You actually can't do some of the stuff without actually having a router in use. And, and, and that's absolutely the, true, yeah. And the um, firewall can't do it for it. It can do a certain level of routing, but it still needs a router. So it needs both. Really, so and you're right. You're that's where simplified Wan. on the physical side and the virtual side. It's gone the other way. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And on the SD-WAN side, I'll say on the SD-WAN side, you're finding the convergence of all those technologies. It's a router. 
it's a security device. It's also a security policy management device because you can manage a, you can set a security posture for the entire collection of SD-WAN devices in a centralized controller. Um, and I think that's probably the biggest key in what you're talking about, about key management, which I'm certainly not an expert on, but as we start to deal with centralized control, as we move into a software-defined world and an API world, then I think the, the, those complicated tasks of having to deal with key management and managing security policy and more open exchange of policy between the different you know, groups that have to own and care for these things, having, having those systems talk uh, and be more tightly integrated, I think, is the key to, to hitting that scale. I mean, you just almost have to do it. It's what the web scale companies do. Okay. I'm, feel, I'm feeling like we're missing something here. Um, and I'm, and I'm, and, and the, the topic of policy came up. And what I see in what we, what everyone talks about is, oh, everything should be relatively easy. We'll just do it all via policy. Oh, okay, that's great. The practical implementation thereof is dead wrong. There's no, there just doesn't seem to be a agreed upon standard across networking, security, storage, machine level, so on and so forth around any sort of industry-wide policies, right? Uh, there's lots of compliance, and I'm not talking compliance here. Um, I'm talking the ability to say, um, do, do certain things based on policy as opposed to, okay, I get it to this state and then I check to see if it meets PCI. I'm talking more along the lines of I've added a new device to the network and certain policies then are applied against that device of which I can then go test. So what I would say to that, Mike, is that where I see that happening is in Yang modeling, at least on the network side, because we're abstracting intent from the actual application of whatever configuration is required to fulfill that intent. And it's something that's kind of a booming area in networking is that you can take um, Yang modeling and say, I have an intent that I want to take and apply to a device. Um, and that's open, and it doesn't matter what that device is. doesn't matter what the hardware is. doesn't matter what it is. Once I build an intent model, then it can, it can take that and instantiate it into an end device. So um, we're seeing security policies being applied in that, in the Yang modeling. And I don't know that that's made it into the security world yet, and I don't follow it enough to say with any authority that it has. But I know at least in the networking world, uh, the Yang modeling has blown up in our world because it allowed us to, instead of having to have a library of scripts or an API for everything, it provides almost like a common layer that we can say, I want to take this VLAN and this firewall rule and this whatever it is, whatever you would normally put into a piece of config and create an intent. And then whether it's a Juniper or Fortinet or uh, you know whatever that is, it will it will have a, a model that it understands how to apply that intent. So that that to me could be something we could see as a common framework to manage that in, that intent for uh, for policy. So these models are basically a, pre, a predecessor to some form of orchestration, and they already exist. they. 
Uh, they already exist. There's a couple companies that are doing it. Tech Field Day showcased one called Anuda that allowed you to apply network and security policies based on intent. And it was they do exist, and Yang modeling is making its way into most networking uh, devices, and I think even into some security devices now because it's gotten it was really popular, I think, with the web scale guys, and that's what kind of got it into the world of orchestration and automation um, was because it was so powerful at establishing a very abstract level of intent and then translating that into action. Okay. So, Mike, would that solve that problem for you? Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um, because they're, they're, all of these devices have to be able to accept commands to do the things that put it into the state that I want it to be. Mm-hmm. And there just doesn't – that's why we have things like Puppet and Chef that have all these different scripts that – do a lot of these different things, uh, and they, you know, for 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 one type of device, you have to write a, a Python script. For another type of device, you have to write a Perl script. For another type of device, you have to run a PowerShell script. And there's no common API across any of those things by which to be able to do that particular task. There's a company a couple right. of years ago. A couple of years ago at RSA's innovation, RSA Conference Innovation Showcase. The winner was a company that glued all that together. Actually, that did what that was. It figured out that I need Python and Perl, whatever, to, to manage these APIs. Yeah, but or tool but, suites. But those those are those are like having a, a an auto mechanic um, that needs to. Um, change the light bulb on the back of a car. And for a Toyota, he needs a Torx 9. For a Mazda, he needs a Torx 10. For a Ford, he needs a Phillips. For a Studebaker, he needs a flat. He needs all these different types of tools to do the task. And I'd like to see more standardization so that we all agree that the way to do this is with a Torx 10. You can't get that. I don't think you're going. Yeah, I know. I I know. Even I mean, if you but, think about it, I don't even. There's, there's even some of the major virtualization companies have no common anything. There's no common API anywhere that says I need a Torx time. And and what I'm trying to get at is that that's going to be a I think a limiter. Um, for doing things massively at scale. Do you see that as a problem in the networking side, Kevin? Uh, it is, it is to, to be able to integrate. I think we are starting to see a lot of systems that are going to allow us to do a better job of taking care of the networking pieces, but I think um, the, the, the challenge that we've always had is tighter integration with the application and security side because they've always been very divorced, very manual things and so that at least I, I don't know if yang is the you know one shot one kill because we never seem to find the one shot one kill in this industry but i think it's the closest piece that i've seen because it focuses so very much on intent so to go back to the analogy of you know i need a torx 9 or a torx 10 
it knows exactly what what you know what size you need to do that task, and it can abstract the intent away from the actual config or script you need to accomplish the task and act as a middleware to be that bridge so that you can hit an, an API into that middleware and then do whatever you want. Um, and that may that may be a you know a, a, an intermediary approach because maybe we do have some kind of a standard that will allow us to to interoperate better. But I think I think I agree with you, Edward. It, that's a hard thing to find to get everybody to agree to do that orchestration. That's why we find ourselves in the boat that we're in now of we're fighting for better standards to uh, orchestrate all the different pieces together so that we can scale better. But it, it's still a huge challenge because of the disparate vendors and protocols. Well, and that's why we have Puppet Chef, Ansible, and a number of different other orchestrators and automation tools. And I think that's really what, in order to get the scale you need, you need tools that, A, respond to some form of API. Whether that's a private library or not, it makes no difference. I need to be able to script it in some fashion. If I cannot script it in some fashion, you're in a one-off situation. I mean, I was just deploying a lab, an, an internal lab, and there are so many manual things to do that, yes, I could sit there, and for a one-off, it's not worth it. But for scale, it's worth finding out, you know, the right commands to issue and to test to, so that you can continually deploy the same thing over and over and over again. I think from a security perspective, from a networking perspective, even a developer perspective, we need to learn these tools. And the unfortunate thing is, is that you're going to be learning more than one. Because the industry, everybody in the industry uses their favorite tool and says, hey, we're a puppet shop, we're a shop, we're an Ansible shop, we're a chef shop. We use all three. We instead chose Jenkins. I mean, there's all sorts of things. I mean, I know one shop that doesn't use any of those and just does scripting by itself. They do their own scripts. No framework or anything. They just they've script it, store it, and store it so we can improve it later. Becomes an interesting world. Do you think that there's one tool, or, or we're ever going to get there? I mean, no. the only thing I think it's got in there is DNS. Yes. Would you agree, Kevin? That DNS is probably the closest you're going to get to that. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I mean, DNS is one of the most universal systems we have. Every, everything, we, everything that has an IP on the planet depends on it. So, yes, I would say from a universal uh, perspective, then, yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. So when we start thinking about tools, or I wouldn't say tools, but I would say from perspective of security, specifically key management, DNS, a key management system has to be as prevalent as DNS. I mean, that's the goal. Will it be? And I, I, don't I like your idea of it maybe becoming part of DNS. That would be intriguing. I think mm -hmm. there's enough room in DNS to do it. Actually. 
Well, they certainly have offloaded a number of, you know, you think of how DNS has gotten more specific. There's so many different things you can do in DNS now. Um, so, you know, all the different types of records that perform the different tasks. Now you have DNSSEC. So, yeah, I think you're right. It could potentially be ex either extended to support that or, um, you know, or do you look at a new protocol? I think the only, from from a resiliency point uh, standpoint, the challenge you have if you do want to try a new protocol that's the same as DNS is, um, you know, DNS has gone through so much work in making it resilient and not, uh, um, you know, uh, not really failing completely around the entire world. We certainly have regional failures, but um, if you land, you're going to start doing key management or something like that in there, you've got to have something that is just absolutely bulletproof. And creating that from scratch is going to be hard. Well, yeah. it's a, it, I agree with you, but, I mean, let's think about that. In order for do DNS, I not only need the trust relationship – I cannot give you the key unless I have that relationship. That doesn't exist in DNS today. If I set up a DNS sec setup on my, my DNS server to a DNS server that has DNS sec enabled and it, everything's set up right, I can query everything out of that DNS server I want. There's no limit. When you start talking about keys, though, there have to be limits. Limits based on user, device, even that trust relationship. In other words, multi-tenancy. And DNS doesn't do multi-tenancy today. At least I've never seen it do it. I don't I'm think wrong. it exists I mean, in public DNS. Maybe maybe you can do it in some kind of private DNS implementation. I, I don't think you're. I think you're right in public DNS. I don't think you have that framework. Well, it would have to be a public DNS to be as widespread as we need. Sure. Or could you do it by encrypting the data there and still having a key hanging around? Now you can't get you, you can get the data, but you can't decrypt it without the key, which means you still need a key somewhere which kind of defeats the purpose of having a key manager. That's the big problem. So do you see security folks working with you hand-in-hand, hand or, or do you see them not? Um, it depends on the environment. I do some. Some we we have a pretty good relationship, and there is a good you know there's a good there is a good working relationship because there are so many dependencies on network functions. Now, um, in others, it's you know sometimes it's a it's it's a bit resistant um, you know as far as uh, you know exactly what you want to do. So it, it very much depends on the environment. Um, but I will say they, they're so tightly integrated now that one thing I think we we on both sides would be helpful. I know it would be helpful for the networking people to to really do more deep dive in security because there's things that we don't really get or really touch a whole lot that would be helpful to us in understanding the role that security's got to play and vice versa there's a lot of things that we've got to deal with that um you know are often well just you know we'll let the network guys you know handle that and i think that's in order to get the tighter integration the teams that develop these things um across you know whether whether you're talking enterprise or data center or, or cloud um, have got to work very closely together to make this to make this happen, and that's that's one of the struggles that I often have. Although I will say I see it getting better each year that passes than it was say ten years ago. But do you actually see the virtualization folks involved or the container folks involved in your networking? 
It, it's it's it happening really a little more. Thing? It's happening a little more than it was. It's not been. It's not in the past. We've not had as tight integration with the you know the the virtualization or container people into um, the network stack, unless you're talking about you know dealing with something like you know VMware NSX, and then there's you know both parties are kind of coming to the table on on that. But traditionally, no. There's there's it's been very divorced, and that's been part of the problem is neither side has a good appreciation for the the problems that the other has to solve, and and that's something we've got to fix. Well, it's kind of like I mean, networking doesn't just stop at the at the port anymore. It's I mean, it doesn't stop at the neck. It goes further in, and most people, and most networking folks are just saying, "Well," and and in the past, I said, "Well, it has a port jack on it. We just plugged it in." Sure. We don't care no, about that's a great point. Internally, it's like, no, but you should. It's a network in there, but no, it's not to me. But it is. I got switches. I got firewalls. I got load balancers. I have routers, but they're all virtualized. They should be your concern as a networking person. The vast majority of your traffic is coming through them in a cloud. In fact, 100% of it is. But I still need that understanding of the layer two as well to figure out how everything travels. And then I start talking about all these overlays. They came out of that to get a handle on what's happening in the virtual environment because that's all we're dealing with these days. Well, you're 100% right on that, and I don't know if you followed. There's a, there's a movement in the really in the carrier world called network function virtualization that's been getting a lot of steam in the carrier side. Um, they're heavily virtualizing. Um, so we take a company like I'll give you a great example. AT&T has been like kind of a leader in this space. They are working to have their entire network um, NFV by I think like 2022. They already have 30 or 40 percent of their network that runs AT&T's US LTE infrastructure virtualized. I mean, they're running like hypervisors all the way out to LTE towers. Um, so it's a huge movement in the carrier world because it allows them to be more agile and more responsive to the, th the things that they need to run, the applications, and more importantly, the network functions and security functions that they need to secure a massively scalable network like a national carrier. Um, so on that side, we're seeing you know, huge buy-in on virtualization and going all virtualization instead of all, you know, all traditional hardware. I think you're going to see even, I think you're going to see even more of that. Um, if you look at the way the whole edge movement is moving towards where you'll have tons of different devices in some particular area, like a tower, um, and data will be collected from those devices and processed at the edge before being sent up to the cloud for further big data type processing. And I think oh, that's going edge, to just start. Yep. Yeah, well, that's just going to start pushing the security all over the place. You know, it's just and the complexity. And that's okay. It pays my mortgage, but yeah, it's uh, it's going to be very interesting. All new work. Uh, all new uh, use cases. I mean, if you think about it, I was talking about this with, with Frank Deniman the other day. You look at the amount of data that is created just in one of GE's new locomotives is insane. And uh, you know, a 787 collects half a terabyte of data just on its engines alone every flight. Yeah. I mean, I was just going to mention planes. Planes are seriously instrumented. Yes, and you can't upload a half a terabyte of data off a 787 
through the cloud up to some cloud place to mung through that data when you have thousands of 787s flying around. Yep. <clears throat> yeah. Data pipes are only so big. So yeah, it's um, it's going to introduce a whole bunch of new security challenges, uh, and it, that's why that whole thing around we need more common policy-driven ways to do things is just going to become even more important going forward. I think this. I think you're right, policy-driven, but I also think that people need to stop trying to do things by hand. Yes. I mean, they got to do it in an automated fashion. That includes setting passwords, that includes getting IP addresses. I shouldn't have to report, go talk to a person to get that. I need an IPAM. I, I need all these different tools available to me so I can automate everything. And if I'm doing network function virtualization, now in a carrier world, what they're doing is using virtualization and do consolidation of disparate network devices into one device that just happens to be acting as all these other things as well. But NFV in the enterprise is almost the reverse. They've already been virtualized. Now they're breaking out the network even more so that they're actually adding in functionality that they never had before but now because they can chain it all together. So where carrier world is pulling it all into virtualization, the, the enterprise world that already is virtualized is adding in more and more. And that becomes really interesting. Um, hey, you see, you're right. Do you guys see that? Yeah, it's certainly a huge challenge for me because you're, the point that you made about the point that you made about, hey, I have this whole network that lives inside a hypervisor, um, you know, is is I, I've had to deal with it more and more and increase my skills on virtualization um, because you're you then you start getting to things like like the NIC, you know, I need to understand is my is TCP offload working correctly? Am I having a problem because TCP offload and the hypervisor and the VMX Net three is that working right? And I've run into situations where we've had that challenge and it's it's the marrying of the two the two teams because you have the app teams and the and the virtualization teams that kind of own and manage these things um and yet you know where it meets the physical network you've got to understand the relationship there and what lives on the other side of it what's been done in the v-switch you know what does it look like and so um having that you know visibility and understanding of how the virtual network is built is every bit as important as understanding how the physical network is built and having it match up Yes, and that too. I mean, you can't be doing BGP in one place and not doing it in another place when they have to align some fashion. And you can't be doing an overlay in one area and expect it to always jump to an underlay, to be going just to layer two, then back to an overlay. It kind of gets broken in some ways. Like, I mean, you can do that if you do it right. Right. You mean you have to do the proper VTAP and all that to do it, but it can be done. No, you're right. I think the goal for us as networkers should be 
you know, we need to build a path that you can dynamically leverage and light things up on. You know, you shouldn't have to talk to a networking guy to get a VLAN lit up. And, and you know, some kind of a policy built for a path, that needs to be automated and orchestrated. And you should be able, as long as it falls within what you're allowed to do, the, the security bounds of that application or that service, you know, you should be able to dynamically have it light up through the network. And that's something networking has been behind on for a while, and we're doing our best to catch up. Um, you know, as operators and designers, as well as the vendors to say, you know, we have to be able to dynamically build these things so that when you need a service, just the way that the cloud does, the way AWS does, when you need something, it gets built, you know, it's instantiated and it's not calling all these teams and let's go put this policy in and let me put this config in and have a change window. Uh, it can't be that. And we're fighting to get out of that as networkers. Good. I mean, you're absolutely right there. So here's the thing. We've got the last minute final thoughts. Mike, your final thoughts? Yeah, uh, expect change. You've been saying that for the last few shows. Yeah, well, you know, it's true. I really do think we are on the cusp of major changes in the way we do IT. Um, it if you think that you're not going to have an Internet of Things in your environment, you're dr drastically wrong. <laughs> drastically wrong. Yeah. Uh, if uh, it, There's just going to be so many different things um, changing. Uh, the need for key management is going to explode in the next four years. And there's just a lot of things to start thinking about how some of the changes we've discussed so far are going to impact the way you do your business and keep your options open and don't ever say, this is never going to happen to me because it just might. True. Now, what's your last thoughts, Kevin? Um, I think my, my last thoughts are, we're seeing the blurring of the, the traditional IT disciplines, and we uh, we have to better, I think, understand that the network the network now lives inside the application, just as much as the application now needs to be able to live and and work inside the network. And those two need to be married together, and they don't need to be disparate. And I think that's that's the the thing that we need to look at doing the most. And tighter integration of of IT teams and disciplines is going to help facilitate that now that the vendors have caught up and given us the tools to do it. Agreed. Absolutely agree with both of those. There's going to be change, but the change is not too – I mean, people need to think about, I'm not changing to lose my job. I'm changing to keep my job, and I'm also changing to keep up. We are constantly having to relearn things, and we're just going to have to continue to do so. Networking folks are learning virtualization and virtual networking. Network I and mean, virtualization guys are learning security and network and traditional networking so that the teams can actually communicate. But I agree with Mike. It all has to be policy-driven in some fashion. And we're really behind on that. Agreed. So this has been the 184th episode of the Virtualization and Cloud Security Roundtable. Thank you very much for listening. You can find us on TalkShoe at um, call ID 34217.
We are also um, syndicated on iTunes for those people who would like to drive in and listen. Have a listen there. I'm Edward Hletke. I'd like to thank Mike for joining us and as well as Kevin Myers for joining us. Thank you both. Have a good weekend. Yep, thank you. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.